are building a religion. We are building it bigger. We are widening the corridors and adding more lanes. We are building a religion, a limited edition. We are now accepting callers for these pendant keychains. To resist it is useless. It is useless to resist it. His cigarette is burning, but he never seems to ash. He is grooming his poodle. He is living comfort eagle. You can meet at his location, but you'd better come with cash. Now his hat is on backwards. He can show you his tattoos. He is in the music business. He is calling you dude. Now today is tomorrow. Welcome to tomorrow another edition of Kush Vlog. And now, give it up for America's most trusted news source. It's Matt Grisman. Hey, hey, I am indeed America's most trusted news stork. I'm here to be a stork, delivering news, dropping it swaddled in baby blankets through your chimney, which you will now absorb. Uh, I feel great. I don't know about you guys. I'm definitely not drowning in my own mucus, unlike some people I know. Uh, man. It's funny how things get interesting very quickly, isn't it? Uh, obviously, the big news that just happened is that Trump went on to Twitter and said, yeah, no checks, no checks before the election. If you vote for me, maybe you'll get one, which is the perfect type of dumbass uh, politicking that a moron like Trump would do, thinking that it was smart. Like, he thinks that that's genius. Like, oh, no, people are going to want to check and then they're going to vote for me to get one. Forgetting the fact that Trump, that Biden is is also saying that he would give checks and bigger ones, uh, and the fact that with any of Trump's promises to make things better if you vote for him, the problem always is, well, why don't you do it now? Why don't you make my life better now? You're literally waiting. You're telling me I only can get my life better at all, uh, whether it's stopping the rioting or getting checks to people if you vote for me. And it's not supposed to be that explicit, you know? That's the thing with Trump is that he, he takes the implicit premises of a lot of politicking, the stuff that people are supposed to only be subliminally suggested, and he makes it explicit. And when it comes to stuff like race and dog whistles turning into shouts, people freak out about it. But the fact is, is that in general, it's a little heavy-handed, and I don't know if it has always has the effect he wants it to have, and I think in this case, it's a disastrously terrible idea. The fact that they're letting him do this, honestly, tells me that the Republicans have written him off. They have made the smart choice to say he is a polarizing figure, his value is is no longer uh, no longer extant, we've, we've squeezed all the juice we can out of this particular lemon, uh, and now the best thing to do, especially since we've secured the courts forever from the, from the entire federal apparatus uh, up to the Supreme Court, uh, we can just sit back, let the Democrats flail around for four years, fail to deal with any of the problems that we've uh, created, and in fact, make, do our best to obstruct any attempt at fixing them, which of course will be minimal because the Repub Democrats don't have any more interest in fixing anything than we do. And then come sweeping back in in 2024 and take the presidency, which, of course, is always what people who are terrified of what comes after Trump. Uh, I don't know what that is. I've given up guessing. I will say, though, I really think this is true. 
less than a month before an election uh, with the entire economy reeling and people facing mass eviction and, and huge loss in income to not get a second round of checks out to people before the election. It just tells me that that, that that right wing populism that people are afraid of happening, the sort of Josh Hawley, uh, Heron Volk democracy where we get white Medicare for all or something. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I don't think that that's going to occur. I think that the Republican party is still well in control by capital as is the democratic party and capital has a bipartisan consensus to not get people too used to free money from the government. And as such, no one is, has that much leeway to really be the Huey Long esque every man a king uh, uh, figure from either party, you know? And so that means that we're just going to get more culture war, I would say, on the horizon. Uh, well, the material conditions just keep getting worse. Uh, and with no one doing really even suggesting anything to be done about them and no bidding war along actual economic axis, it's going to be pure grievance. And... I mean, I can get it from McConnell's perspective. Like McConnell, he's got, he's going to get Amy uh, Cohen brothers on the court. Uh, and that's all he really cares about. All he's had his eye on. And he doesn't really care who the president is because he rightly understands that at this point, it's sort of meaningless. Uh, as long as the constraints, as long as the uh, aperture of political action stays where it is uh, and making sure that, there isn't even a possibility of Trump becoming a populist uh, kingpin. Uh, uh, as long as that's off the table, then he doesn't really have to worry. And now it's off the table. The fact that Trump allowed them to do this really does speak to the fact that he's too stupid to assert the authority that he could have. Cause it is amazing. He is a person who hypothetically could go to war with the entire political apparatus. He could go to war with the Republican party and the democratic party and create and, and really create a third force in American politics. But it would have to be somebody other than him to do that. But nobody other than him could be in a position to do that. To me, that's endlessly fascinating. The only person who could have threaded the needle in 20, 2016 was Donald Trump. But because he was Donald Trump, he does not have the interests, uh, the political uh the political agenda or ambition or vision. Like he's not a political person. He doesn't actually care about the structure of American politics in any way, which means that he will have no, he has spent no time in the last four years actually doing anything to stand out from conventional Republicans. When it comes to governing, it's all been at the level of rhetoric and at the level of spectacle, because it would require too much investment to try to push back against the dominant ideologies within the Republican party as evidenced by the fate of poor Steve Bannon, who got turfed within six months because there was nobody else who had his back and a sure shit wasn't going to be Trump either. And now the, the upshot of that is that they are willing to sacrifice him and they, someone convinced him that this was the smart thing to do because it's like, I guess because it, it, it makes it, it makes him feel like he's in charge to tell them, yeah, no, nego no more stimulus. You got to elect me to get more stimulus with no understanding that this means that he is now the man who is taking responsibility for people suffering through this fucking crisis for at least months with no end in sight. 
astounding. Amazingly amazing. You know what? We love it folks. Don't we? And of course this is now making it look more and more like you could see a genuine landslide, which could lead to Biden winning and the Democrats taking the Senate. Uh, and it will be very fascinating to watch them fail to do anything with that power on purpose. That'll be, that'll be very entertaining to watch. Uh, and I think that that's really what McConnell's bet is. And it's a good one is that he doesn't really have anything to fear from the Repub Democrats in power in terms of really changing the dynamics of power uh, or influence uh, in, in government or changing popular perceptions of what government can do. Uh, or the responsibility to you. So he's in the catbird seat with it, or I guess the, the, the turtle bird seat, I should say, or the cat turtle seat. Actually just the turtle turtle seat, no other animal, just the, the turtle seat. He's there. He's on his flat, what a hot rock. He's sunning himself. He's in his glory. And Nancy Pelosi, of course, thinks that she's being a genius too by it's so funny. Her attempt is very clear. Like she, she doesn't have any incentive to see checks go up before election day either. Right. She wants to see Trump get Trump have this around his neck, but there's usually you would have to worry about your opponent realizing the obviousness of that and not falling into the trap you've laid. Meanwhile, they had, they just led Trump out to fall onto the spikes like a fucking cow just because they told him that he'd look very strong if he did that. You look very strong, Mr. President. And yes, people are definitely going to care more about in the last three weeks before the election, they're going to be much more invested in this fucking religious weirdo nobody's ever heard of than getting actual money in their bank account. You're 100% right about that, Mr. President. Someone says Amy Kevin Garnett. That's good. Amy, that's actually one of the best ones. Amy Kevin Garnett. That's not bad. So yeah, Pelosi is uh is is being gifted in her enemies. Uh which is the the greatest blessing you can have, which of course is the blessing that Trump had when he had to run against Hillary. And I think I really hope that this election, this 2020 final, will really clarify retroactively that whole phenomenon and tell us that that the whole Trump phenomenon really was partially at least. I mean, obviously it has real basis. But the phenomenon of him being the president for four years is sort of an Indian summer situation created by the specific uh, catastrophic insanity of having Hillary Clinton run for president. <laughs> I mean, just the only person who could have lost that election. And I think that over time, I, I think at the time people recognized that she was the only person who could have lost that election. But then Trump's specific center of gravity his ability to consume all white kind of obscured that and he became the whole world. And I think a lot of people kind of lost that perspective and started thinking, okay, things are different now. We're in a new world. I know I felt like that sometimes, but I think now people are sort of sobering up a little bit, you know, 200,000 dead, no coronavirus release. And, and like there could have been something to Trump, but as I said, he would have had to have been a different person. And since he wasn't, it's going to end up being this false dawn. And I think we're probably, we're not, I don't think we're going to get some sort of Heronvolk uh, movement because there, there clearly is not any interest in that at the level of 
establishment Republican power. And the only way that you can say that that could be counteracted at the grassroots is if you were to have somebody who could take Trump's entire base in hand, but direct it uh, like to an actual political goal, which is what people say they're worried about Tucker or whatever happened or Josh Hawley or, or, or Cotton doing. And as I said yesterday, I don't think any of those guys have the range. I don't think any of them can fill that role. They could get a chunk, but I don't think they're going to get the whole thing, which is what they need to to be uh, effective against resisting the actual party that they're trying to uh, push against. Because we have seen what happens when you try to uh, move from with like use party structures in this country against the, the parties. When Trump did it in 2016, there was minimal resistance at the institutional level just because he was only seen as a transient threat until he became the candidate, at which point he was seen as someone who could be controlled, which largely he has been. You know, like at the individual level, a lot of these guys have been humiliated and some of them are going to die because they thought that they could control Trump. Like fucking Chris Christie, for example, <laughs> thought he was going to be attorney general or some shit. And now he's just coughing his ass out in fucking New Jersey. Uh, but the institutions and the people who actually hold institutional power are largely uh, still where they were before. Uh, but Bernie, on the other hand, the Democrats threw out all the fucking stops and made sure that he wasn't going to uh, be able to challenge the institutional prerogatives of the Democratic Party. And I don't think there's anybody on the horizon who, 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 who can channel that Trump lightning in a bottle but not be a TV dumbass. Because him being a TV dumbass is such a huge part of it. It's so, it, you can't disentangle him. Like the idea of Trumpism without Trump is a little incoherent. Like it's, it's the same thinking that tells that a lot of people use to say, oh, like we can, we can do, like we can repitch socialism like through the lens of patriotism or whatever, or, or you know, like do entitlement reform, but, or, or I mean, like a push expansion of entitlements, but, using nationalist language when these things are coded in certain ways that are intertwined, you know, at like the symbolic level and, 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 and pulling one meaning out of them is beyond the, the uh, abilities of any, of any one individual. The only person who can capture the imagination the way Trump did is somebody who is a, a being of pure spectacle of pure TV game show energy without any heart to it. If he had a heart, if, if he had a, a, a political valence, his career would have been different and he wouldn't have been able to be everybody to everyone the way that he was. Grant Cardone. Who the hell is that? Who the fuck is Grant Cardone? If I've never heard of him, I'm not worried about him. I'll say that. And the Kanye thing. No. Kanye doesn't have the, uh, I guess, focus to do it. I'm going to look at some cards. <laughs> going to look at some Gulf War trading cards. See what's going on. He's a Scientologist social media guru and real estate uh, creep. Well, that guy sounds cool. And I could definitely see him becoming like a crooked senator or something, but I don't think he's going to lead the political party in four years. 
What do we got? We've got the M60 main battle tank. This thing looks pretty cool. It's got a 105-millimeter gun for more firepower. It was an important part of the Desert Storm. You know, they still make tanks. They still make a ton of tanks. And the, 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 the Army actually says, we don't need any more tanks. And then they just requisition more because we have places that build tanks. And so we just say, no, 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 you need more tanks. And so they just have these giant tank graveyards where they just all hang out. Don't do anything. Don't use them for anything. It's pretty amazing. Then there's another one. Ooh, here we go. Syria. Oh, that'll come up. That'll pop up a little later. Didn't get any credit from Uncle Sam for being on our side in the Gulf War. That's the one thing we need to know about America is that those, mother, those hoes ain't loyal. That is one thing we know about... Oh, my God. Military skill. Heroes don't do drugs. None of the U.S. Armed Services tolerates drug use. Drugs impair the ability to think and move. Just like in civilian life, a soldier's success and survival depend on clear thoughts and careful actions. Good soldiers and good civilians never take chances with illegal drugs. And here we got uh, geography. Jerusalem. I don't know what this has to do with the war in Iraq. It's interesting how they kind of sneak in these like references to uh israel like sideways in the in the cards as sort of a background context for our deep investment in the middle east as a strategic uh terrain but they don't say it explicitly <clears throat> jerusalem and athens the two cities But I also think that Trump doesn't want to be president anymore. I honest, I mean, at this point especially, he was not having fun before he got the, uh, the novel coronavirus. And now he is, I think, legitimately miserable. But I think, yeah, this Biden, this Biden, uh, this Biden, term is going to be very interesting because it is it's going to be a real lab test it's going to be the exact same immiseration and horror and corruption and institutional failure that we and rot that we have seen in the last four years but there will be none of the hysteric cultural frenzy around his presidency the way there is with trump and what fills that void that's what i want to know what cultural fixation like do we really get into flagpole sitting and stuffing people into elevators like it's or uh, telephone booths like it's the 1920s like is it bear baiting what do we get what, what do we do what do we do to fill our emotional void that all this politics is going to leave how are we gonna, how are we going to process because right now we're processing the trauma of the political moment through the spectacle of the Trump presidency, but Biden's presidency is going to be intentionally uh, diffused of that symbolic energy, but that energy has got to go somewhere. 
Avatar 2, someone says. I agree. That would be amazing if the if the Biden the Biden term is just Avatar Mania, like Avatar takes over and people are getting full body Navi tattoos and 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 they're turning into reenactment societies and there's entire intentional communities that are trying to recreate uh uh Pandora. People living in trees and fucking each other with uh synthetic uh uh, tails that they've had surgically implanted onto their bodies. Let's do it. And then James Cameron can run for president as a third party uh, candidate. Although he is Canadian, that could be a problem, but he'll be so popular that we will elect him and uh, overturn the constitutional amendment on the same day by acclamation. So, how are and most importantly how are these people how are all the people including myself who've like turned politics into a into an identity how are they going to walk down from that or are they not are they going to somehow find a way to get that round up in the machinations of the biden administration this senescent old man just sitting in the oval office talking to corn pop in his head he's having a he's having a uh, a meeting with corn pop and uh jane mansfield uh, Bo is there, of course, and his, his dead wife, and they're all just uh, talking about how they're going to pass a bill to make sure that root beer tastes good again. And meanwhile, the gears just continue to turn, and you get reassured that, well, you know, if the, Repub- if the Democrats just had 75 senators, we could finally get something done. And it's your fault. You, don't, you didn't believe in them enough to vote to make sure that there were 100 re- Democratic senators, which would allow us to actually make things better. One billion senators. Let's do it. One billion American senators. Every, every man, every man, a senator, but no one wears a sash. That's one thing we could bring to American politics. They have that in Latin America a lot. Sashes. Sashes of office. You know? We don't, we don't wear enough sashes in American politics. Japan has sashes. Everyone's got sashes but us. God. We make politics such a spectacle, and yet we don't have any of the fun uh, utterances of that. My favorite attempt was uh, Nixon... In the in, in during Nixon's term, he made a, an attempt to have the Secret Service wear uniforms, and they were he, they basically looked like they were in a marching band. They had piping, and they had I think epaulets and white gloves, and everyone thought it was very goofy and embarrassing, and they got rid of it pretty quickly. But yeah, for a brief period under Nixon, the Secret Service wore uniforms. And that makes sense because Nixon was one of those guys who actually did take seriously the, the, the presidency as we imagine it, right? Because the only way the presidency makes sense as an office, given how much power they're officially bestowed within the constitutional order and how much in, uh, focus they have in our political mind, in our political imagination, that person is essentially the one-man embodiment of the state, like truly, like l'etat-de-moi le, le type deal. You're like You are in charge of everything. Uh, relations with every country in the world, the, the grand trajectory of American foreign policy and domestic policy, 
Uh, and when you talk about things like global warming, the fucking future of the habitability of the the habitability of the of the fucking planet, which is of course insane and crazy, and no president can actually do that. And most of them, I think, understand at a certain level that that's not the actual job. But Nixon thought it was. Nixon thought that he was at the crossroads of all human history, and that he was the one man who saw the future of the American project and was the one man who could steward it. Uh, to successful fruition, meaning meaning that he saw the end of unipolar, unipolarity. Uh, he saw the end because he saw the end of uh, he saw the end of the Ameri- He saw the end of America as the industrial uh, heart of the world economy. He saw the uh, he saw the end of America as the producer, and he saw that it was going to become the, a consumer because when he took. When he removed uh, gold convertibility, he, he ended the final vestige of the gold standard with the dollar. It meant that uh, dollar circulation was going to be predicated on uh, budget or on uh, trade deficits, which meant we were going to have to produce much less and buy much more. And that meant that we weren't going to be in that position of our golden age and that we were going to have to walk, basically negotiate away from that to a multipolar world and he was the only one who saw it and he was going to do whatever it took to make it happen which of course is why he was an isolated maniac who tried to run the entire foreign policy of the united states out of his own office with henry kissinger and why the intelligence community saw him as a threat and why he spent his last years in office getting shit-faced on the white house on the presidential yacht and watching Patton, because that job is not the job as created and conceived of is not doable and shouldn't exist. Like I, I said this after 2016, Trump should be the last president. And I hold, I hold strong to that. And the fact that we're making, honestly, the fact that we're about to elect Biden by such a huge, if it happens, such a, such a big uh, margin proves that because Clearly, no one really believes that this job is what we think it is. So why not get rid of it? Why not remove this absurd anachronism from our system if we're so cavalier with it that we're just going to let anybody who's either entertaining or uh, tells us reassuring stories about uh, putting hairnets on and and fighting people with uh, bike chains in the 1950s like it's the concrete jungle? No more presidents. Come on. Get out of here with the presidency. I'm looking at some of these questions. What's the best ape? Got to say, not humans, certainly. Orangutans seem pretty chill. I like those guys. Gorillas, too. I mean, chimps are generally considered kind of assholes. And of course, that's because they're the, the most similar to humans. Give me uh, like a, a nice, a nice chill orangutan, nice chill vibing orangutan. People are saying things like uh, gibbons and stuff. Those are not apes. Those are monkeys. That's a different question. How dare you? Okay, so. I watched the first episode of The Good Lord Bird, uh, and 
I don't know how many episodes there are. It was only the first one. Uh, I will say that I really, really did not like it. Uh, it, it was basically the exact opposite of the, of what I would want out of something like that. And I know, understand that it's based on a book and like that. It's not about John Brown, like John Brown's a character in another story. Uh, but I get that. I just think that the approach to the material is bad. I think that it is, it's, it's not interesting as I guess what I'd say, because I'm not interested in how we from this perspective, this point in history, like view this kind of stuff because that's pretty easily divinable. I think trying to recreate that psychic terrain and like grapple with, you know, history as a, a foreign country is much more interesting. And I did not feel that from that at all. It really, it, it killed me. The first thing, the first scene is it's, it's, it's John Ron about to be hanged, being taken to the gallows. And it's a voiceover from the, from the main character who is this, uh, this former slave who was liberated as a child in Kansas by John Brown and knew him over the, like the last decade or so of his life. And he says, he says some, he says some black people think that he's, uh, uh, you know, he was a hero. Some black people think he was some bullshit white savior. And that just like stabbed me in the fucking heart because, okay, that's understandable from the, this, from not from now, right? Like, yes, I can understand anybody saying that now black or white or any other racial background saying like, this is that the, like maybe not even as a real person, but like as a, as a, as a historical personages and as a, as a character that people like cleave to one way or the other, that he is a, uh, white savior. Yes. But do I think that a character who lived through that period would say that or think that or communicate that as a belief? I don't think so. And that's the violence to the historical tapestry that I find kind of repulsive. Were people really thinking about like, Oh, Oh, sick of these Mayo ass white saviors in when slavery was happening. And John Brown was a, one of a handful of white people to take black equality seriously to the point of risking his own life and life of his family. Maybe, but I'll say this. I never seen it. I've not seen any evidence that that was anything like a common view. Uh, and it just more than anything feels not interesting. It just feels like I can get these takes on Twitter. I don't need them in a show. So I will watch the whole thing, but I'm not happy about it. Did not like Ethan Hawke at all because he's playing it as a complete psycho, like absolute maniac. And we'll see where it goes with that. Like I might, this might be a misdirect, but watching the first episode, I really got the impression that the show was essentially taking at face value. The old Dunning school claim that John Brown had to have been insane because you'd have to be insane to be a white man and take equality seriously. And, but now this is like in this moment, the woke take is that, yeah, white people can't really be not racist. And the idea of any white person truly pursuing like uh, uh, equality in life is in some way delusional or, or is racist, but not in a way that they can recognize. And I think that that's a kind of like racial pessimism that I think is one wrong and two really depressing and frankly, fucking politically counterproductive because I just do not see the upshot here where everyone is supposed to believe that racial chasms are unbridgeable. We cannot really ever cooperate across racial lines except white people being compelled by guilt 
That's the only way. And yet, but somehow we're going to create a coalition in this moment of profound crisis that will have the necessary trust to be able to operate meaningfully. I don't think so. I think the opposite is what you're fucking building is you're building a situation where if fracture comes, people are going to be told from one end of the fucking spectrum to the other, that the only safe Harbor is race is, is, is the, is the certainty of race. And you'll have like a few academic white people who will take that to mean, well, I need to abnegate my race like pathologically. And I'm going to, I'm going to just be the opposite of, of what I think my identity is, which good luck with that. That's not, that's a recipe for, uh, for psychological, uh, uh, schizophrenia, honestly, uh, or, or you recognize and everyone else is going to just end up going back towards, uh, just towards racial politics at its most, uh, suspicious and hostile and, and that means that every demagogue of every stripe will be able to guarantee that we're, there's never any meaningful resistance to the capitalist onslaught of uh, total uh, spiritual and material alienation and, and, uh, and destruction. So I'll keep an eye on it, but not, not very pleased with the first episode. And also, just from a pure aesthetic perspective, uh, it did this thing where it would just like skip scenes and just like kind of jump ahead and and it kind of deflated any kind of dramatic tension and made it feel just sort of like a, it gave it, it had that like and then and then picturesque feeling that I, I tend not to like because it drains things of a, of a momentum. Because, so anyway, we'll see. Not, not, not encouraged after the first episode. Gibbons are apes? Really? Huh. I didn't know. I thought Gibbons had tails. Learn something new. Chris is here. He's uh, he's laying in the cut. He's looking at the at the comments. He's judging all of you for your bad questions. He's got a list of bad questions, and he has your handles next to them. And uh, after three strikes, you get banned. Isn't that right, Chris? Uh, I actually am not sure how to ban people from the chat. Oh. Um, I also watched uh, Good Lord Bird. Oh, what do you think? Uh, I probably liked it more than you. I. I I I am familiar with the, with the John Brown mythos. Uh, though I don't have a premeditated take on how I would want to portray it. Um, I've I've listened to your takes on it and what you would like to see. I, I understand your criticism of Hawk's performance, but I do think that even given what you've discussed, I appreciate. You know, even though it is, as you say that he's playing him as a total psychopath, not psychopath, but a crazy person here, it it is like a half step away from what you would want to portray is that, you know, the, the religious fervor and belief people felt at that time is incredibly alien to us today. Yeah. Uh, although I will say that it was often played like when he was talking to that rabbit about, you know, whether it felt God in its heart or whatever, you know, as a joke. Well, the thing is, is that he's the only one who's that religiously at this, like all, even his, uh, even his sons and stuff are all rolling their eyes at it. 
Like every other character is modern and except for him. Yeah. And to me, and, and then the, so he's just this, this absolute specimen of like a, a pre-modern era that is like caught in a glass jar. But what that does is it turns his anti-slavery sentiment just into another pathology of religious mania. Mm-hmm. Like not that it's rooted in anything. Like I think that you could make it. I would argue is was John Brown insane? Of course, John Brown was insane because the only coherent uh, definition of insanity is a social one, right? Like you can't say that insanity has some sort of intrinsic definition to a person that is not just a, con- a social context, uh, you, because you know we're all building reality in our heads. The only way we know if they're conforming to the real world is if other people agree with us. And John Brown was insane because to be a white man in that era and to truly believe in in racial equality was to be by the social contact by the social mores of the time to be insane. It was it was a it was a disordered thought. It was not. It was not a rational or reasoned response to the world around you because everyone knew that that wasn't the case. And they, and worse of all, you ended up, if you believe that kind of thing in that social context, over time, your actions will become more violent and erratic because of the inability of you to live in accordance with those beliefs. So yes, he was insane, but that says more about like the social order of the time. And to me, what I didn't get, what I got from this, and we'll see if it persists, is that the show has that cynical, you know, like half wise, like Afro pessimist thing of like, yeah, that, that was always true. And John Brown was kidding himself to think that America could ever think that black and white people were equal, which made him insane. And, and so therefore those, all those white racists were more right and more sane than he was. You know what I mean? Yeah. We'll see, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, currently reading a little bit of uh, 19th century American history, one of the things that stands out to me is, you know, we've all been keyed up, over, especially over the last four years, of, you know, the constant frettering that, there, that America's on the brink of some psychological break and just really diving into the, uh, especially like post-1830, the state of your average politically engaged American, the amount of edging towards insanity over a number of, basically over the slavery issue it seems much much higher yeah i mean we did we actually did a war we did yeah yes uh, but but just the general tenor of of denunciations renunciations even just the language that people would use in, in mainstream from one congressperson to another they were about, beating each other up in congress yeah about about like the perfidy uh, and and uh, destitution of soul and spirit of 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 the opposing sides and then was about as uh, as as it's just on a whole nother level of keyed up. It's on that alien level where we we it is a foreign to even try to comprehend how these people uh, built these issues in their psyche. Yeah, because they are insane issues. It's yeah. an issue of, of of agreeing with or disagreeing with the a widespread social acceptance of human bondage. Yeah, and it doesn't it it doesn't seem to me to take like the premise that it is in fact slavery that makes that mania. It is the imposition of that system that drives the mania, you know, mm-hmm. uh, rather it's this cynical after the fact observation of, well, look what happened after the war. Look at our failure to integrate black people into American society at every level. Look at the persistence of racism. 
well, maybe those, uh, those, you know, red, uh, maybe those, uh, rough border ruffians in Kansas. I mean, they won, they were right. And, and John Brown, therefore, from our perspective is the insane one because his, uh, dream was unattainable in this country. And I don't know if that, I, like I said, I don't think that cynicism is, is warranted and I sure shit don't think it's politically useful. And considering how much it suffuses so much fucking art nowadays, I did not find it something interesting or uh, evocative to watch. Uh, I did appreciate uh, our, our boy from Lodge 49, young Kurt Russell, showing up as a young Jeb Stewart. Yes, young Jeb Stewart. He did, he did a decent job with the accent. I mean, he's got the face for um, a, a Civil War guy. Definitely. The and the beard. But yeah, I think I'm going to do now, after this is over, I'm going to watch the whole thing. I'm going to do an inebriated past on John Brown and the coming of the Civil War. And his sort of place in American history, because I feel like we're losing it. It's like we went from Dunning school where he was crazy for thinking black people were equal because obviously they aren't uh, to now he's crazy because he thought white people could be not racist, which obviously they can't be, which to me, both of them lead to the same place. Some sort of racial separation and racial endless racial conflict defining American uh, society until a point of uh apocalyptic confrontation because what's the alternative if you can't have one polity if you cannot have a transracial american polity that can coordinate across racial lines and trust one another across racial lines to build a project and to invest in it then how the hell are we going to be anything other than just stripped of everything and then set to war against one another on the most uh flimsy premises and across the most cynically uh, uh reified racial uh, and and absolutely fundamentally abs uh um illusory racial differences uh i'm i'm gonna not i'm gonna switch topics for a bit just because it's funny that uh this came up today with an ongoing project i have but uh, i have an answer for your question of uh, where all that anima goes uh in the joe biden administration that that cultural fervor that we've built ourselves into arguing over the president uh, and it is arguing an eternity about whether infinite jest is good or not. <laughs> God, it's it's eternal recurrence on Twitter. Doc. If you don't believe in eternal recurrence, just spend a year on Twitter and note how many times the same arguments and the exact same contours come up over and over again. It's like it's like they're they're fucking volcanoes. They build up. They have to burst forth. Everybody gets their fucking David Foster Wallace takes out of their system and then they go back into dormancy until they arise again. There's something about, hmm, I don't know what it is. There's something about, there's some sort of gender anxiety, I guess. It's so funny that that is the thing that became such a locus of gender anxiety around it. So the, the background of this is that a few weeks ago, uh, Molly, uh, my wife, uh, and I, started a project because she has read infinite jest multiple times, loves the book. And I have never read infinite jest. We keep seeing these things come up and we were like, we, sh we need to, to, uh, I mean, excuse me for being flippant, but we need to queer this narrative <laughs> and have the, uh, the, the woman of the couple read to me, uh, the book. Uh, and so that's what we're doing in a podcast. She's reading it on the podcast as an audio book and, and to me. And then, uh, we, you know, we're chatting about it afterwards. And we did it especially because we knew that this would keep coming up and then we could keep promoing it every time people were arguing about it. It's pretty it. good. It's a pretty smart move. You're not going to go broke uh, anticipating this bursting forth. 
And what's so funny about it is it's clearly this gender anxiety, but it's very specific urban. I hate to use the term, but there's no other word for it. PMC or an overproduced elites who are, who are, who, who, who live in like this post-feminist world where they're supposed to be, you know, encountering one another romantically on equal level, but there is this lack of trust and this anxiety about like maleness as this, as this toxic set of traits. And, but because we're talking about a very small subset of, you know, urban professional educated uh, guys, it has to be personified by like the symbols around this 1200 page fucking book that almost no one in America has read, <laughs> including the vast, vast percentage of American men. And certainly the most toxically masculine American men have not fucking read infinite jest. The very idea that this is a stand in for like aggressive masculinity is just proof of how distorted this lens in uh, you're talking about this tiny subsection of, of American men who at the end of the day, it sucks to date because everything sucks. <laughs> Everyone's miserable. Everything sucks. Nobody has any money. Nobody has any security. And we uh, just project these anxieties about the other that then wrap around these absurd fucking uh, shibboleths. But anyway, I've actually read the book and it's good. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it so far. We're only sorry 40, to trigger you, but it's we're good. only 42 pages in. It's going to probably take it's 200 take episodes, two-ish years to get done. You will finish You will finish the project broadcasting from like a fucking ham radio in a climate refugee camp. Yeah, and we will still continue it. It's called Infinite Cast, soundcollet.com slash infinite dash cast. Yeah. Sorry to promo on the cushion. No, no, the, please the, do so. I, I, hope I know that's a very gauche. So I'll, In a year and a half, when you get to the eschaton scene, I would like to come on because that's my favorite. So I'll uh, pivot to this. Matt, what's your favorite Jacob Wool scheme of all time? Uh... I mean, the thing where he had the guy come out and talk about uh, how he got sexually dominated by Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, that's the clear answer. That's what I was going to say. That's pretty funny. The guy couldn't even not laugh. That's really funny. He was like literally laughing while he read it. Uh, I actually saw when we saw him in. Uh, was it Concord or Manchester? Uh, what's the capital of New Hampshire? New Manchester? I think it was Manchester. We saw him in Manchester at the lobby of a hotel. He brought donuts. And the only people who he was able to muster uh, for his press conference were us and two autograph hounds who hung out in the lobby to, like, see political celebrities, uh, which means they were absolute cool people and uh, bosses, 100%. One of them was, like, an old dude, and the other one was a young kid in a MAGA hat who who didn't recognize Jacob Wall. Uh, And... Wall couldn't keep a straight face during that one when he had the guy come out and say that Biden has Parkinson's and that he had met him at secret rich people Parkinson's support group meetings with Michael J. Fox and shit. Uh, and that was really a, a, a high point for me. It was just thinking like, okay, buddy, what what's in your head? What are you up to? Because now he's in trouble for doing actual voter fraud and voter suppression and vote tampering that could get him in actual prison, which was not a bit like that was actual uh, criminal activity. And yet he was clearly doing like the Biden stuff as a, in some respect as a joke. He's a fascinating figure to me. To me, he is the most interesting of all these guys. The, the funniest part of, uh, of that was the, the, the MAGA kid who was looking for autographs of like, I don't know, one of the hosts of uh, Fox and friends or whatever. 
And we were like, hey, are you going to get Wool's autograph? And he was like, I don't know who that is. And it was like it was like a rock and roll f- f- uh, autograph hunter standing two feet from Lou Reed. And that being Serious. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know who this guy is. Yeah. Up your game, young man. Yes. Up your game, young bud. Uh, 20 minutes before that, though, when we got to the hotel, we got to see Brian Kilmeade fail to open a door for about five minutes. That was very funny. He kept like rattling on it and wouldn't open. God, what a what a dummy. Um, there's throw some more, uh, chat questions in the chat. I have a few from a while ago, but I have no idea how, uh, how relevant they are today or anymore. These are my, Oh, I just want to say one other thing about infinite jest. Uh, and it was a tweet that I retweeted from someone else today. Forget who it was. Uh, that it is very funny to always see these takes on infinite jest specifically takes denigrating it on a website that is a entertainment product so addictive that people spend their entire lives on it and in fact lose their sense of sanity and perspective by gazing at it. Which even I know is the literal plot of Infinite Jest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the, the unmarked vid card given yep. to the, uh, the attache. Yep. Yeah, the one I'm, thing... I'm through that part. Like The thing about that book, and you'll find this out as you read it, is it is incredibly... Uh, 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 Prescient. Prescient. It, he clearly knew where everything was headed. He, he, he saw how I, uh, uh, the spectacle was isolating people and, and, and providing this, this narcotic for, for that sense of alienation. Uh, but the one thing that he couldn't have predicted, because it seems like nobody in the, in the 90s really knew what the Internet was going to be, was the interactivity. You know? Because his, his, his entertainment ends up being just watching something. You know? And the thing is, is there was... It, what it turned out is it couldn't be watching something. There has to be an interactive element. There has to be a, a, a further, not just the fantasy of the narrative that you're absorbing, but a fantasy of participation in the narrative. That's the final ingredient. That's what turns it from morphine to fentanyl. And that's, that's where we are. Uh, okay, let's go, maybe go back to this. Let me see what this question says. Uh, I mean, I feel like I know the answer to this, but I kind of want to go back to talking about this in the future. What happens to stimulus talk to Trump in a lame duck session with a big electoral defeat? Uh, and nothing will get passed. I mean, I think we have to be, be, be ready for the fact that I don't think anything's getting passed. For, um, possibly forever. And I, I think we'll get something... If there has to be something in January, just, I mean, for the markets, like at the end of the day, when you wonder like what needs to happen, the thing that's going to be the gun to the head will always be the markets. Uh, and, and for, for just like there needed to be a, a stimulus to, for the first time, even though it was not anything anyone wanted to do as a first order preference because of the, of the precedent it set, there's going to be another situation. They're going to need that. Uh, but not before that, I don't think. And so things are going to be really, really bad. Uh, and like I said, the thing to watch is if the, if the Democrats win the Senate back, which I said I think they will, watch what they do with the filibuster. Because if they, if they, if they don't do something to, mon- to, uh, to reduce the power of the Senate minority to, uh, to stop legislation they're not going to do anything in a previous stream. I've said that the, uh, 
my prediction for for big signature policy from a Biden administration is is some kind of ACA, but for climate. Uh, and I still think that that might be true if they have the political capital for it. But I, I have updated that to having actually re- read something about the Congress priorities, the uh, the H.R. 1, which is the voting rights bill. Yes. And that makes total sense because voting rights are the only thing, the only thing in the Democratic uh, putative wheelhouse of policies that they actually care about because it impacts, impacts their ability to maintain voter share and therefore share of power. And without an, a, a consistent vote share that reflects a consistent ability to influence policy, they are not useful to the people that they work for. And so they need to protect their vote share. And the one thing that I think they've been genuinely scared of under Trump is that slide towards just outright vote uh, um, uh, nullification. Because and, and, and that's what they're actually going to spend any of their capital on is Re- rebalancing the political structure in a way that guarantees their continued access to vote share. After that, I think it'll be a bunch of uh, glad-handing bullshit with no real teeth to it. Which is very is very funny and perfect because right now, and especially as we entered the summer, there are the Democratic leadership response to literally any issue is vote. What vote. are you going to do to prevent uh, them filling the Supreme Court seat, Nancy Pelosi? Well, vote. Vote. You have to vote. Uh, which is why I will be writing in Merrick Garland uh, on the ballot uh, in November. Yeah. Um, but then their signature, their move after they get the votes is to do one big move to get more votes. And then after that, who knows? Probably and then not. they'll get nothing passed, but they'll say, we just don't have enough uh, senators. Vote, please. Now you can. You have no excuse. We, got, we, we secured your uh, vote. We've secured your voter integrity so now you better vote for us and if you do, and if we don't get anything done it's because you didn't vote enough for us it's the perfect uh it's the logic of uh like a water dowser or a faith healer if it doesn't work it's because you didn't pay enough or believe enough and it can never be disproven which is what's so funny about how many people who think like that really believe that they're being the most logical, rational adults in the room when the thing that they pin their entire political faith on is an, is a transparent scam. It's pie in the sky when you die. Like, uh, like, uh, Joe Hill, I believe wrote. Um, I don't know if you have any interest in this one, Matt, but somebody keeps asking about Jade Helm 15, which is just very funny to me because the the move over five years from uh, being terrified that the uh, the government is going to use Walmart's to stage a national um, use net Walmart's to stage a, a, a national guard invasion of Texas to the Republican president pledging to invade Democratic cities. Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's the thing though is that none of it is. None of those principles are real. Everyone's principle is power. That's the only principle Americans have is power. And the only American uh, value is contempt for weakness, which is why Trump getting COVID is so bad for him because he looks fucking weak. That's it. doesn't matter that he's infected 500 people. He's typhoid Mary of Washington, D.C. doesn't matter that his policies helped lead to hundreds of thousands, maybe 100,000 unnecessary deaths. And who many, how many knows more? After that, it's that he's he's uh, he himself got sick. He he did not. He lost the mandate of heaven by contracting coronavirus, and and it proved that he was a weakling. And uh, and 
mercy, uh, mercy is for the weak and the weak must be destroyed and the strong shall inherit the weak's reward. As they said on wonder shows and, <laughs> The strong shall inherit the weak's reward. People keep posting this, and I'm not sure how to believe it, but apparently Facebook just instituted a full QAnon ban. Oh, shit. That's going to work. Remember when 4chan banned Pizzagate? And then they created 8chan, which then created QAnon? <laughs> uh yes nbc news facebook bans QAnon across its platforms oh boy is that part of the hashtag plan do you think like how do you how do you square that how do you how are they doing right now i mean obviously i know they're they're i i mean obviously no one very few people are going to be really disillusioned by this some will like i've said like everyone does not have an equal commitment to these things and that's why you can't think of it in terms of like an entire movement flipping overnight or staying loyal overnight it's going to be a gradual process some people are going to fall away some people are going to double down and i'm just interested in specifically how the people who double down are going to rationalize everything especially if trump loses and leaves office and especially i mean if he dies i'm going to assume they just think that he's gone but if he leaves office and is just there but not in charge anymore i i really don't know what they're going to do it'll be very interesting a uh, lot of ways for things to go yes a lot of ins a lot of outs a lot, a lot of, of what have you. I do think it's interesting because uh, obviously, you know, the, the 4chan people just created their own website, but I don't know what these boomers are going to do without Facebook. Like all they know how to do is post. They are not computer savvy. I mean, half of these people are still paying for AOL uh, discs, even though they have broadband as part of their cable package. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's wrap it up. Yeah, you want to you wanna call for this evening? Yeah, let's do it. All right, great. Um, this has been another issue, uh, issue another uh, episode of the Chris Vlog Grill Stream. Say goodnight, Matt.